Hello, college football fans. Welcome to episode 89 of College Football Throwdown. I am your co-host, Alex Schmitz, and today I'm joined, as always, by my dad, Peter Schmitz. Hello, Husker fans and college football fans. Hey, hey, hey. So we're coming to you here uh, in early January after uh, the majority of the bowl games are done. We've only got the national championship awaiting us, uh, and I'm coming just off of uh, traveling back to Los Angeles after some good holiday time with you and the family back in Traverse City. So it was a good trip. Yes, it was. It was a great trip. Great, great time to be with family, of course. And hopefully all of our listeners out there have been able to enjoy that as well. Um, and uh, that, in fact, that leads into my, uh, you know, our traditional beverage that we like to open at the beginning of our podcast, because this uh, podcast, of course, is partially based on you, you and I's conversations that we regularly have when we're together. And when, when you were growing up and a little younger, um, and uh, uh, I would often have a beverage in my hand and, and uh, telling you what I thought about college football or this, that, and the other thing, and slowly uh, evolved into this. And so uh, one of the things I'm looking forward to doing today is uh, I've got one of my favorite beers. It's a Labatt Blue, uh, which is a Canadian Pilsner. It's an outstanding beer. It's kind of my go-to, in fact, for most of the uh, I'm going to say the most of the last 20 years or so, certainly during this time that I've lived here in Michigan, uh, it's readily available. It's as available as Budweiser would be. <laughs> and uh, um, it just happens to be a bottle that you purchased and then left behind when you left to go home to LA. So I particularly like the fact that I get a drink, a beer bought by my son. <laughs> <laughs> You're like mooching So thank you, me. Alex, for this cold. Yeah. Thank you, Alex, for this cold beer. Uh, it's a bottle though. So I don't know how it will come across on the uh, thing all. I'll try my best. Did you hear that? It's just just a very quiet. Yes. But cheers to you, son. Cheers to you. And thanks for the beer. (laughs) Well, no problem, Dad. Uh, That is one of my favorites as well. Labatt. And I I tried to have a good bit of it while I was out there because you can't get it here in L.A. So. Right. Right. I, I bet you there's places you can, but it's not common. Right. Not just like at the Ralph's grocery store. Right. Exactly. Yeah. They're not going to have that. All right, so uh, as we said, uh, we're going to be talking about all the different bowl games in the college semifinals. We gave predictions on our last podcast, which we'll go over um, and see how we did. Uh, But before we dive into all that, um, there is some Nebraska-related news. Uh, We didn't talk at all about, uh, or much at all, about recruiting stuff on the previous podcast. And since then, we've had the first signing day. And uh, uh, Scott and the coaching staff were able to pull together a pretty nice uh, class right there near the end. Absolutely. Uh, It's pretty amazing what they were able to pull off. Um, You know, given that we're a team that now has three consecutive losing seasons to have been able to put together back-to-back top 20 recruiting classes. And uh, this class is is very much comparable with last year's. It's uh, maybe, uh, you know, just a little bit of what people might describe as a notch below uh, just, a, you know, because of maybe one player or two uh, in the overall. But um, but this class is, is is filled with what I believe are going to be some key difference makers, um, some, you know, top 100 type um, recruits, if you will, and a consensus top 100 type recruits. And then and then probably a, a, a good dozen players that would be considered in the top 300, you know, so. So uh, um, 
as recruiting classes go, this is one of the best ones we've had. And, you know, since the early 2000s, you know, when um, Bill Callahan was our coach and he was quite a good recruiter and put together a couple of good classes. So, so we're going in the right direction, even though on the field, we didn't get the results this year that we wanted. Uh, this class is uh, really outstanding. And I, uh, I'm sure we'll go into more detail uh, on this uh, later uh, after the second signing day and um, when things are a little slower uh, in the whole you know, scheme of college football. But, but as a kind of a summary, you know, we've got some guys at the top end of this class, uh, to a couple of them that are playing in a, uh, played in an a, um, uh, all-star game today in fact, um, and have been practicing all week and stuff. And we've been getting reports from them and, um, you know, they're doing very well. Uh, and, and that was a uh, Turner, uh, Corcoran, uh, who's an offensive lineman, six foot six, 275 pounds, you know, um, one of those key 500 mile radius recruits, you know, that's the term they used basically to describe that, you know, what you really need to be able to do, what Nebraska, uh, philosophically needs to be successful at is, is securing commitments from uh, a, a high percentage of the best recruits within a 500-mile radius of their um, university. Now, now a lot of schools, because they have so much population and talent around them, they, they really could find a, a top 15 recruiting class within a, you know, uh, 50 miles <laughs> of their campus. But for Nebraska, uh, we, uh, we kind of described it as being 500 miles and that we really need to kind of lock in that area. And this is a class that kind of represents a, a pretty good job of doing that, that that 500-mile radius. And the reason you want to do that is because it, uh, those are players that, number one, tend to have a, a little deeper and, and better understanding of your program and, and what it is because they're from the region. Uh, their, their proximity to Lincoln also makes it easier for their families. And so the support structure and everything tends to be a little more uh, – consistent and available to players and then uh, um, uh, they're likely to stick around and understand the culture of the program uh, more easily than maybe some guys from further away now that's not to say that we don't want to recruit nationally because we have to that is an absolute must and we want to do that but it's just the probabilities that these players are going to turn into good football players for us tends to be uh, a little higher if you have all those other things so that's where that um, you know, 500-mile radius is important. It's more, more likely that you're going to have a better chance at those player region than ones that are from further away. Um, so, so a guy like Corcoran is, is really important. But then as a, the, other, uh, the, the other all in this high school All-American game is a kid from Florida, where, which is another area where this class just shot. I mean, we, we were able to secure commitments from a number of uh, players from Florida uh, including like, you know, three uh, from the uh, Miami uh, area uh, and uh, and not just average players, but good four-star, you know, top 250 type talents. And uh, for us to be able to do that, to go into Florida and do that, pretty darn amazing. And the only reason that we're, uh, or one of the big reasons, because of Scott's past there at Central Florida and his uh, um, his staff, uh some of them have, you know, ties to the South Florida area, and they are really taking advantage of that. And they've done. so it's it's exciting. I I did not expect that we would end up with a class like this. I think this was a critical class. And um, so um, anybody who questions 
Scott and his staff's ability to recruit need to kind of chill their wheels on that. And it's really, uh, I'm more concerned uh, from a Nebraska perspective about what, how are our, are our coaches going to improve? Because that's what needs to happen. They need to improve in their coaching uh, as much as anything. Right, right. Uh, I haven't been following the recruiting stuff as closely as you have, uh, but I was seeing like all these posts. So and so is N, and oh, Nebraska gets this or that four star, you know, on some of the uh, websites I frequent, you know, about Huskers or college football, uh, which was uh, cool to see for sure. You know, like you say, coming off of uh, three, uh, four, you know, two, four win and then one, five win season, you know, uh, you'd expect our, our recruiting to kind of be down the tubes, but uh, Scott's doing a good job of selling uh, the program that he wants to make, you know, and obviously uh, it is exciting, especially for on- offensive talent. You know, um, he has a very dynamic offense, so that attracts some good skill talent there and interest uh, from those types of players. Yep, I agree, and it's a it's good good thing to be optimistic for the future about that. If we can just turn those two those last two classes into the core of what will be, you know, our team for the next three or four years. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Um, and then the other piece of news, and this one's a little more recent is that um, we heard that uh, uh, Frost and the coaching staff were having a meeting with uh, Maurice Washington to kind of discuss his future with uh, Nebraska. Um, and it was officially declared that uh, he is gone from the program will probably be leaving the university um, my guess just going off of gut feeling is that, uh, Scott had a serious sit down with him and laid out, okay, th- this is the path to, you know, redemption, quote unquote, if you want to, you know, stay with the team and probably putting up some high, uh, barriers and expectations on Maurice that he was not prepared to fulfill. Um, what's your take? Uh, exactly right. And, and the bottom line was, is that either they felt he wasn't already fulfilling, you know, those, those uh, expectations that he had set, or he set expectations that, that uh, Maurice um, was unwilling to accept and take. So, um, um, you know, bottom line is, is they decided to go their separate ways. Uh, you know, Maurice still has uh, a legal issue out there in California hanging over his head. And so um, I, I just think uh, it's disappointing because I think if, if he ever is able to get himself, you know, um, straightened out, so to speak, in terms of what he's doing and the choices he's making and his attitude from a teammate standpoint, that he has NFL talent as an athlete. Mm-hmm. You, hate, you hate to see that, you know, you hate to see that kind of go to waste, so to speak, but you, know, the, you have to have the the package, uh, you know, the whole package enough to keep it together. And so far he hasn't. Yeah. He hasn't proven that he can do that. Um, so yeah, like you say, you know, definitely a bummer, but at the same time, I feel like it's, it's kind of a good thing that we're just kind of like, all right, it's gone. It's in the past. We're moving on. We don't have to speculate about whether he'll play or not, you know, for next season, you know, we can just move forward with the, the running backs. We know we have. Exactly. And, and as much as I know, he was a, special talent we have some pretty high quality young players coming in including this recruiting class we just talked about we have two outstanding running backs in that group 
and so, um, you know, I'm optimistic that we will have effective running back options going forward. That's right. And then uh, one thing that we were going to bring up on the previous podcast but didn't have time for is some of the uh, coaching shuffling that's been going on. Um, two of the big ones are that uh, Lane Kiffin got the job at Ole Miss and Florida State got Mike Norvell from Memphis. Um, so those were two of the, the bigger positions to fill uh, this offseason. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I knew that uh, – um, uh, Kiffin was going to be getting some opportunities. Uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm, I'm not surprised at all that the SEC is where he landed again. I think that's where he kind of wants to be. Um, he, you know, he's, he's a guy that I think likes the warmer weather. You know, um, he, he likes having access to the SEC area type of athlete. And I think once he gets the ball rolling there, he'll do well from a recruiting standpoint. But I also think that it's likely that what's happened in the past will happen again, which is that at some point his snarky uh, <laughs> attitude will probably get in his way and hinder his ability to take it to a high, high level that he's capable of. He won't, he won't quite get there. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I'm kind of yeah curious to see how he does. And also um, following the story of Les Miles at uh, Kansas as well, um, you know, because those are some like, like you say, coaches with uh, personalities um, uh, going to some kind of, you know, a little bit lower programs. Um, not Ole Miss as much. I guess Ole Miss has some serious history to them, um, but we'll see. Uh, we'll see how they do. That's right. Exactly. It's going to be interesting to see. It's going to be interesting to see. All right. So then, uh, as we said, the bulk of our discussion today is going to be on the bowl games and the uh, college football playoff. And we can go ahead and start with those, uh, since those were some of the first games that we watched um, before the the New Year's Day games. Um, There was the Peach Bowl with Oklahoma and LSU. Uh, we both predicted an LSU victory. I said 42-24. You said 48-28. Uh, but uh, neither of us quite got got the uh, the blowout nature of it quite right. It ended up being 63-28 Oklahoma. And, uh, LSU... No, not Oklahoma. Uh, L- yeah. L- LSU. Well, uh, right. Sorry. sixty. Yeah, 63 LSU over Oklahoma 28. Right. Yes. Right. Yes, yes, yes. And, well, I got uh, the 28 right. Yes, sixty-three twenty-eight, uh, and yeah, it was not a uh, a close game pretty much from the start. You know, LSU kind of pulled away early and kept that lead the whole time. Right, exactly. They were the superior team, and and Oklahoma, um, you know, Oklahoma had uh, some some issues with some of their players not being eligible, which you know they they needed all hands on deck to even give themselves a reasonable chance. And with those players gone, and I think that, that just uh, they, they just weren't even in the same uh, stratosphere as as LSU on that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not to mention that uh, at least so far, uh, Burroughs is uh, uh, holding off, fending off the Heisman curse because he played great that day. I had got like seven touchdowns in the first half, which was like a re- record of some kind or something like that. Yeah. Oh yes, absolutely. Yep, yep. That's that's a remarkable thing to do under any circumstances, but in those kinds of uh, you know championship level competition uh, and and pressure and stuff like that to to rise the occasion and be that 
that effective. Um, he was remarkable. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, and uh, I think it definitely uh, puts LSU as the as the favorite going into the uh, national championship game. They're the number one ranked team for a reason. Um, but uh, talking about the other game in the Fiesta Bowl, uh, Clemson versus Ohio State. Uh, Clemson up ended up pulling up the up. Well, it wasn't an upset per se, but it was uh, they came back to win against Ohio State, uh, 29-23. Um, I was the one who predicted a Clemson victory, although a little higher scoring. I predicted 38-31 Clemson, was you predicted 38-31 Ohio State. So, Correct. And Ohio State, you know, is, again, one of those things where uh, I would describe that as a game in which Ohio State lost it more than um, um, they, uh, the Clemson uh, won it. Uh, and I don't mean that as a slap in the face to Clemson. What, what I'm really talking about is as I, as I look and watch, as we watch that game together, you know, um, there were just countless opportunities for Ohio State to take control of the football game, especially early, uh, and they were unable to capitalize on those opportunities and then turnovers uh, and things of that nature kind of got into it a little bit. Um, uh, but b- bottom line is, though, as the game progressed, uh, the, the, the leadership of um, Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback from Clemson, uh, uh, definitely played a factor. And he just was a gamer and made plays. And their coaches' strategies um, and their preparation showed up. I mean, uh, the adjustments that they made at halftime clearly made a difference. Um, so Clemson was a championship level team on that day and Ohio state, I think, uh, um, stepped in the, a little bit and, uh, did not play at their best level. Yeah. Yep. Well, we were talking before the game and you were saying that, uh, Ohio state was a more talented team top to bottom. Um, and I was kind of leaning towards Clemson, uh, just from how well they were playing near the end of their season and their status as the defending national champion. Uh, but you're correct. Uh, just looking at that game on its face, Ohio State looked like the more talented team, uh, you know, and they had three opportunities in the red zone in the first half, I believe, uh, where yes. they could have scored touchdowns and end up setting for field goals. And that ended up uh, biting them in the butt later on, uh, kind of as we as we predicted, you know, they were controlling the game, but they weren't able to put it away early and then Clemson got one touchdown and then a field goal I think at the very end of the half and they were I forget if they were in the lead or they were just like behind them by like three points or something Ohio State was winning at halftime um uh but but uh but yes they they could easily have been comfortably ahead if they had converted some of those field goals into touchdowns which they should have Mm -hmm. um so and and you know uh there were also a couple of calls in that game that uh certainly swung momentum. Now, the fact is Ohio State still had opportunities to win, still had opportunities to stop Clemson from winning and couldn't do it. So uh, I think in the end, those, those uh, challenging um, uh, play, or I mean, uh, referee calls and such that, that didn't go their way uh, were disappointing and obviously had, uh, had an impact on the game. But at the end of the day, Ohio State still had plenty of chances to win it and couldn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, uh, I was going to say any Ohio State fans listening would probably be upset if we didn't bring up the calls because it wasn't just one. There were several uh, right calls right on the edge that had a big impact on the game. 
Um, for example, you're talking about Trevor Lawrence in a, in an interview. He said that after that big sack, then it being called for targeting where Ohio state lost one of their best defensive players. I uh, kind of rung his bell a bit, but in a good sort of way. And he ended up coming back out and playing harder with more intensity and they started running him more. Um, and from there he kind of rallied his team, you know, and, and had that great drive, uh, down the field at the end, near yeah. the end of the game where they scored in like six plays or something. Um, so uh, he's, he's something else for sure. And I'm excited to see the, the quarterback battle between him and Joe Burrow in the national championship game. Uh, I, I agree. I, I think it's gonna, it, it will be fun to watch uh, that game. If for no other reason than those two quarterbacks and which of the, which one of them can rise to the occasion again and play lights out. Uh, and he did. I mean, I, he was not known as rudder. That was clearly a, a tactic or a strategy that they had chosen to employ for this particular game with him. And uh, he, uh, I'm, I was shocked they did it, uh, frankly. Uh, but apparently so was Ohio State because they weren't ready for it, including the longest run of his career, 63-yard touchdown run, in which he ran that ball with some pretty good quickness, uh, speed out of that backfield once he got going with those long legs. Uh, he did good. So, um, anyway, um, it was a, a very entertaining game. It's enjoyable to watch. Uh, I think, um, um, you know, the, all the fans got their money's worth, so to speak. Um, and there was some, um, really good talent on that deal on that, t- uh, field on that day. Yeah. Well, and the other factor, um, talking about the national championship game is that, uh, both Clemson and Ohio state beat each other up pretty good. Like there were injured players going down both sides throughout the game. Um, that's true. Whereas LSU, uh, because they were so far ahead, got to pull out their first teamers, you know, in the second half. Um, so in terms of who's going to be uh, better physically and health wise, going into that national championship game, it'll definitely be LSU though. Clemson has a full two weeks to heal up, uh, before that game. Yeah. And the, the, you know, I, I guess I wasn't following, um, the whole schedule process, um, you know, throughout the season and such, uh, or even since last year, but this is the, uh, I believe the first time that we've effectively had a full two weeks between the, uh, semifinal games and then the finals. I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure. Um, and there might have been some times when it was like 10 days or something, but never 14. Right. Um, and so uh, that's kind of interesting to me that they're choosing that because I remember the, the NFL, you know, keeps has kind of gone back and forth between having um, two weeks between the conference championships and then the Super Bowl and then just one week. And they've kind of tried it both ways. There's some downsides to going two weeks because it just takes creates so much time for you know interviews and uh, obligations and just all the hype and uh, and sometimes it gets overwhelmed. Although I haven't sensed that this year with the college football um, championship, I, I haven't sensed that there oh, there's an overhype uh, you know almost fatigue factor that's coming in yet. Uh, maybe that's going to happen over this next week like middle of next week when they do their final uh, press conferences and stuff like on Wednesday, uh, maybe by then Thursday, whenever it is, uh, then, then you'll start to see the fatigue factor where the players kind of get chippy and start saying things that they probably shouldn't (laughs) and things of that nature. And um, so it'll be interesting to see how this two week layoff 
uh, from a health standpoint as well as a preparation standpoint affects both teams. Yeah. The only thing I saw related to that was that uh, people are commenting online after the uh, the famous Idaho Potato Bowl between uh, Ohio University, yes. my alma mater, <laughs> and Nevada. Um, In which the Ohio Bobcats won, and Frank Solich uh, did, did uh, you know, his uh, team a, a service. That's right, and he got bathed in French fries, as is appropriate. Uh, yes. But uh, apparently the, the commentators were just constantly bringing up Joe Burrow being from Athens, talking about his past and then talking about the national championship game you know during the ohio game Um, right so so there was a bit of that well i'm i'm sure they were probably trying to take advantage of that given that he was you know raised there basically in athens and was a star at 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 athens and his dad is the defensive coordinator at at uh, ohio u so um all kinds of connections there to talk about so of course they're going to do that to promote their 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 own product, right? Take yep. advantage of it. Very true. Uh, then, of course, we had the uh, Outback Bowl, or I'm sorry, not the Outback Bowl, the Citrus Bowl between Alabama and Michigan, uh, which we talked about a good bit on our previous podcast, an interesting matchup. Uh, you predicted that Michigan was going to pull out the upset and win uh, 28-24, whereas I predicted that Alabama would win in a higher scoring game 31-38. Uh, but then the final score ended up being 16 Michigan, 35 Alabama. Uh, another game, though, where uh, Michigan was in the lead early, um, but they were kicking field goals instead of getting touchdowns and weren't able to capitalize on that momentum. And then the second right. half, Alabama adjusted, and it was never really close after that. Right. I mean, it's really amazing when you think about early in that you know the first quarter, a little bit of the second quarter. I mean, Michigan was running the football effectively. They were blocking Alabama. It was it was happening for them, you know. And uh, but then they just fell a little short. Yep, and missing opportunities uh, to get seven and, and and that sort of stuff. Uh, drives dying when they after they have some good positive plays and such. And then in the second half, Alabama just came out and all of a sudden Michigan wasn't able to do anything. In fact, did not score. Uh, you know, again. So. Mm-hmm. I was trying to remember which was the game where the uh, field goal kicker kicked the 57 yard field goal. I don't remember wow. which team that was. Yeah. Uh, I I'm, I'm trying to think of who that was. Wasn't that Wisconsin? Wasn't uh, that Wisconsin Oregon against uh, Oregon? Maybe yeah. I don't remember, but I, I know what you're talking about. I remember seeing it and, and, and he just barely got it by there. I mean, I, at oh, first yeah. it looked like, Oh yeah, no problem. But when they showed the, the replay, yeah. um, it yep. was like, well, that was about a foot over that lower bar. Yeah, yeah, it was close, but, I mean, that's still damn impressive. Hell of a kick. Yeah. Oh, yeah, hell of a kick. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, uh, kind of went a little bit as I expected. You know, I was kind of hoping Michigan would uh, play it closer with them, but uh, Alabama's obviously Alabama still, even in a year where they're uh, uh, a little down compared to their expectations. Um and uh, and they 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 adjusted well at halftime, um, and Michigan was not able to uh, readjust accordingly in time to uh, to p- make anything happen really. So, uh, right that game wasn't ex- as exciting for us, you know, on New Year's Day. But one that was was the Outback Bowl that I mentioned earlier with Minnesota playing its Auburn. Um, we didn't do a prediction for that one, um, but it ended up being quite the upset with Minnesota winning thirty one. 
over Auburn's 24. Right. And uh, that, that's very much unexpected. And again, uh, one quick reference back to the, to the Alabama game, because it affects uh, it's an implication to Auburn is that, you know, I felt like Alabama after having, you know, lost to Auburn in their last game, you know, obviously already a disappointing season because they were not going to be in the playoff. Uh, I anticipated that they might struggle a little bit with, um, you know, uh, focus and just attitude going into a game that was clearly going to be a disappointment for them. Now they were, uh, they, they kind of maybe came out that way a little bit. They might even admit that now that the game's over uh, that, and that's part of the reason why Min, uh, Michigan had success early, but now fast forward to Auburn, you know, Auburn was a team that, that, I mean, they beat, <laughs> they beat Alabama. Um, and, uh, uh, so they had all kinds of reasons to have momentum. They clearly have great talent. Um, and so I looked at them and compared their roster to, you know, what Minnesota has. And, and even though Minnesota had had a, a very fine year and, uh, uh really strong and, and that, uh, that sort of thing, Minnesota had some injuries, um, uh, going into that game that, that affected their offensive line. And so there were all kinds of reasons for me to believe that, you know, maybe Minnesota could hang around for a while, but that Auburn would take this thing and go with it. And Minnesota just did what they've been doing all and, um, uh, um, you know, hammered away with the, run. um, got some great, great play from their star wide receivers who, who are, um, one of whom is going to be going to the NFL for sure. And I think one of them will still be around for at least another year, but the, the one who's going to the NFL put a stamp on that game and, uh, absolutely uh, was the guy they needed to be able to beat Auburn, and, and, it, and it worked. Yeah. Well, the part I remember, and maybe this was from earlier in the game, but just how uh, dominant their offensive line was, even with that injured oh, yeah. player and how – how much, how many yards uh, per rush they were getting, uh, you know, against a, you know, a, a, a SEC team, you know, with more talent than them. Um, right. It goes to show, you know, that uh, us at Nebraska, you know, we, we do have to play these tough physical big 10 teams, you know, week in and week out. And, uh, and they're up there with some of the best in the country. Yep. Absolutely. Well, and that's the thing is, uh, you know, as we, as we look at the, uh, you know, um, some of these uh, bowl games and, and, and their results, it does um, make me feel a little bit better about our own Nebraska team from the standpoint that, hey, you know, the, the, that, that team that, that took us to the woodshed up there in Minnesota was probably a lot better than what I and most of our fans were giving them credit for. And so the loss to them, while still unacceptable and, and, um, irritating to me uh is a little more understandable if you then look at uh minnesota in the context of their entire season Mm -hmm. agreed you know and pj fleck is uh seems like he's staying there uh for the for the time being at least he's got this nice contract and they're definitely very pleased with him so i'll be interested to see what they do next year yeah he he is a lightning rod but uh, so far the results justify the attitude so We'll uh, we'll see how that that evolves going forward, but you got to admit he put together a hell of a program and a hell of a team this year. We'll see if uh, if it has sustainability. Yep. And then of course we have the Rose Bowl, uh, Oregon versus Wisconsin. We both predicted a Wisconsin victory. Uh, I said thirty-one twenty-one. You said forty-two twenty-eight. 
uh, but ended up being a bit lower scoring than we were expecting with a, a 28-27 victory for Oregon um, in a game that uh, Wisconsin probably should have won. Uh, but oh, yeah. once again, they made some serious mistakes that uh, let oh, yeah. Oregon well, they're, they're, come back. They were, minus, they were minus three in turnovers. They had four turnovers total. And that related, that translated to at least 21 points, maybe more than that. So when you think about it in those terms, that, that um, um, you know, Wisconsin was dominating that game in statistical categories and every other way, but they, they were just turning the ball over. And, and uh, Wisconsin's quarterback was throwing some interceptions. Uh, their, their, you know, star running back who went over 2,000 yards for the season is one of the few players who, to have ever done that twice in this in his uh, collegiate career, uh, Jonathan Taylor, you know, had a had a big time turnover at a at a critical moment in the game. Um, so pretty crazy to me uh, that that Wisconsin lost that game because I think if they if those two teams played ten times, Wisconsin probably wins seven or eight of them. Um, so in my opinion, that was an upset. Uh, after watching those two 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 teams play. I believe from a overall coaching and just, you know, strategy and everything, as well as the talent uh, and execution, everything was to the Wisconsin benefit except their own turnovers. Right. Well, and you have to give credit to uh, Oregon's defense as well, because I remember, you know, there were some plays where Wisconsin was getting extra yards because uh, Oregon's guys were trying to strip the ball rather strip than just, ball. Yeah. just tackle, uh, tackle Jonathan Taylor, you know, uh, heads up. Uh, but uh, that strategy of gunning for turnovers clearly paid dividends uh, because, like you say, they end up getting four over the course of the whole game. Right. That's true. Well, and obviously that was a strategy that they employed. And I don't know if it was something they did all season because I, I didn't follow Oregon that closely. But but I, I get a sense that they put an extra emphasis on it, certainly going into this game, knowing that Jonathan Taylor, that, that's that's probably the one weakness he has coming out of his college career is that he's going to go into the NFL with questions uh, about um, fumble, uh, his fumbles and um and uh, I, and now that this now that his career's over, and the fact that he had a very obvious and, and significant one in this game, I think hurt him considerably in his NFL prospects. Not that he's going to drop out of the, you know, top tier of running backs, but I suspect he will go lower than expected because of that turnover problem. Right. Yeah, well, it was a bummer because uh, since Minnesota upset uh, Auburn, um, if Wisconsin had won this game, the Big Ten would have been uh, five five wins, four losses overall in the bowl season, um, and then the Pac-12 would have been three losses or three wins, four losses. But instead, those numbers end up reversing, so the Big Ten right. does have a losing record of four four wins, five losses. Um, you know, and it, like we said, it was a game that uh, Wisconsin should have won just based off of who was playing better overall, who was controlling the game more, you know, for a good majority of it. But uh, as we've seen in some other bowl games, it doesn't matter unless you're you're getting the points to back up your your dominance. Exactly. That's exactly right. And and that's a problem. That's that's the the great equalizer. Yes, that's true. That's definitely true. Um, and then uh, last prediction we have uh, is the Georgia Baylor game. 
which took place also on New Year's Day. That was the Sugar Bowl. Um, I predicted that Georgia would win uh, 35-32 over Baylor. You predicted 28-21. And the score ended up being uh, 26-14 for a Georgia victory. Uh, but that score does not indicate how dominant it really was. Because uh, no, Georgia that's true. held Baylor to very few points for the majority of that game. Uh, I would agree. And, and Georgia was playing with a substantial number of players out for a variety of reasons. Uh, so their depth and talent was d- diminished, and yet they were still able to pretty much control and dominate that game. Um, Baylor made it interesting. Uh, you know, In the second half, uh, um, uh, Georgia had the opportunity to kind of blow it open, but they, uh, they didn't do it. They didn't do it. They didn't take advantage of it. And then Baylor did get, get some stuff together. And, you know, there were moments then where you thought, well, it could, this could get interesting before the end of the game, but then it didn't happen. Yeah, that's right. Cause yeah, it was scoreless at halftime and then Baylor started, started off the second half uh, well, but, uh, but they couldn't, couldn't pull it all together. Um, that lead was just too much from Georgia early. Um, and like you say, right. the fact that they were so injured, or not just injured, but having a, also having players go to the NFL and sit out and things like that. Uh, right, and suspension. Right, and they were still so physically dominant. Uh, it just goes to show how talented that Georgia team is. I totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. Yep. So, so but, uh, but it's been, you know, I wouldn't say that was an uninteresting, un unentertaining game. You know what I mean? Like there was, there was enough from Baylor to make you think that the, the thing was, wasn't completely over. Um, uh, but then they were never able to kind of close the deal. Right. Um, as opposed to like the Oklahoma LSU game, which was so disappointing because it wasn't even close. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Although people have brought that up that generally speaking, a lot of the semifinals have not been great competitive right. games. You know, we've had a right. couple of really good close ones in this Clemson Ohio state one definitely was, uh, but yeah, the LSU game was just kind of a standard blowout semifinal. Right. Well, and, and, you know, to, to make arguments on that, I, I, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, some people have, have kind of written articles some uh, journalists and stuff have written articles, you know, suggesting that, well, this is the reason why you don't want to expand the playoff. And, and, and I think that's missing the point of why you have the playoff. I think, I think the reason we started having this college playoff as opposed to what we used to have, which was just bowl games and then, you know, and then having the champion voted on um, was to create uh, uh, greater interest and to, to uh, you know, bring all these different conferences who pretty much, uh, I mean, uh, they have non-conference games, but, I mean, there's a lot of, um, um, what do I want to say, like isolation, uh, you know, yeah. uh, uh, within the sport and as a as a result it has you know uh, it has been a regionalized sport for most of the time that college football has existed and the uh, one of the things about college football playoff that should happen or was one of the goals of was to make it more of a nationally relevant national um, um, sport and one in which you know a, a true quote quote true champion is crowned I think uh, now that we've seen this thing play out uh, even though some of those semifinal games have been uncompetitive. Uh, and if you expanded it, there would probably be even more uncompetitive games. But it would leave the door open for the occasional surprise that happens, like the first year of the playoff when Ohio State, 
who came in as the fourth seed, uh, won not only the semifinal, but won the, the championship. And I believe also um, uh, Alabama, who wouldn't have been perceived as an, as, an, as an underdog, but came in as the fourth seed, um, having not even won its own conference championship, ended up winning it, the national championship. And so for me, it, I don't think there is much argument if you're looking at the big picture. The thing that bothers me more is that now that we are here, it, it's about how it's diminished the significance and the pomp and circumstance and just the excitement for the average fan, uh, not for the non-fan, but for the average fan of college football. Um, the bowl games don't have the allure and excitement that they used to because we've spread them out over a variety of days, um, weeks even. And it's just, uh, it's, it doesn't create the same ambiance and experience of, uh, you know, as you know, I've called uh, uh, New Year's Day the high holy day of college football. You know, there was a, uh, a good period in my life when, you know, for decades, that's the way it was. All those, all the big games were played on New Year's Day. There might have been one game that was played like on January second or something, but all of them were played there. It would be like eight or nine games, and you'd be flipping back and forth. And it was pretty much college football from you know like eleven o'clock in the morning all the way until midnight. And uh, and they were mostly good matchups with a lot of uh, great teams playing against each other. And and all of it was important because there wasn't there weren't these playoff games, you know, so all of them mattered. Now it's like people's focus is exclusively on just the ones in the playoff. Well, if that's true, then we need to expand the playoffs so that we have more of those games that people focus on. Right. Yep. No, there's... Rant, rant over. <laughs> yep. There's something to that. And we've talked about this topic in the past on the podcast as well about the, 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 the diminishment of bowls. Um, I know I've brought up in the past that, you know, it, technically it was the same during the BCS era because the only game that mattered, you know, was the, the national championship. But, but it didn't but, seem as it didn't seem as bad as it does now. Right. Well, because that was just one game versus now there's three games in the playoff. Um, right. And uh, and I think just also in that time period, the bowls expanded. You know, we got more and more bowl games like the right. Idaho Potato Bowl and, you know, these right. ones that don't have as much historical significance. And the teams playing in right. them, you know, are six and six or seven and five. And so people don't care as much, um, you know, so you, you don't expect those games to get that that much excitement. But it's the Rose Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, you know, those those bowls that yeah, do have that history bowl, right right yep oh cotton bowl yep exactly yep, yep. all right. right so so but but i, I gotta clarify that is the famous idaho <laughs> potato bowl yes don't leave that word famous out of there because it's been a part of them for a while that's right that's right well and <laughs> ohio university has been there like three times now <laughs> yes it so has i've gotten acquainted with it um <laughs> And uh, so in total, uh, I ended up predicting four of the five uh, bowl games correctly, and you predicted two of the five. <laughs> so that's where the, I got it. the final tally comes out. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, yep. you know, uh, that's a good thing I don't have any chips or dollars on it. <laughs> that's right. Um, we'll run through a couple of the, the smaller bowl games here before we get to our prediction on the national championship game. Uh, the Cotton Bowl was 
Penn State versus Memphis, uh, which we both felt pretty good that Penn State would win, and they did, uh, 53-39 in a pretty high-scoring game. Yes. Um, And then one of the surprising upsets was the Alamo Bowl with Texas playing against Utah, the Pac-12 champion, uh, but they beat Utah 38-10. Right. And now, and that wasn't the uh, Utah was not the Pac-12 champion. They were the oh, runner-up. I'm sorry, you're right, you're right. But they were, but but still, they were the they were definitely a favorite. Should have won that game if you look at the overall season. But it 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 showed um, what I want to say. The uh, um, uh, it, it kind of reflected, and it and it makes the the Wisconsin uh, Oregon game that much of a head scratcher to me. Because I, I I was so uh, I felt so confident that Wisconsin was the better team, and frankly they they proved that in every area except turnovers, um, but that's what matters, and, and and they lost. But but Texas uh, took it to what I believe was probably uh, the most complete team in the um, in the Pac-12 at, uh, of, in Utah, High, uh, well coached, you know, uh, good, uh, uh, and basically all facets of the game um and texas texas did all right yeah now if i remember correctly that was a close game at halftime then texas pulled away well uh so twofold uh one um i was thinking of them as the pac-12 champion because of course they were the favorite in the pac-12 championship game the fact that oregon beat them was quite the upset but i think oregon may have kind of exposed um some holes in their in their defense that uh that hadn't shown up earlier in the season and Texas was able to do some of the same. It was 10, nothing at halftime. So Texas, the defense had done a good job of shutting them down, but uh, certainly very much still within reach. Uh, but then in the third right. quarter, Texas got a couple more touchdowns and then it was pretty much out of reach for Utah. Gotcha. Yep. Yep. And, and so it'll be interesting to see how that one victory, um, you know, changes the trajectory of uh, the Texas uh, uh, program and and the per, uh, and really the perception of them as we go into the uh, the, the next season. Because Texas, I think, going into that game, you know, might have viewed themselves as a little bit uh, disappointed, having uh, you know lost some games they probably felt they shouldn't have, and um, uh, you know, just kind of muddling in being good but not great. Uh, but now uh, I think that uh, that victory in that bowl game uh, might really help them. Yeah. Well, it, it will also it will certainly increase the expectation of media. Yeah. Well, because correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like the past couple of seasons in these preseason polls and rankings, you know, which you should never trust too much. Uh, but they've typically right. put Texas as like a top 15 or top 10 program like oh this is the year they've got all this talent you know and so far they just haven't been able to make it happen well they've beaten oklahoma which of course has been the you know the king of the hill in the big 12 for quite a while and uh uh, here in recent years and they've looked really good at times and obviously they recruit well because they're texas and they have so much access to athletes speaking of you know 50 mile radiuses you know that's an example right there where where uh uh, well, certainly a hundred mile radius of uh, Austin, uh, they could easily sign a top ten recruiting class every year uh, with the talent in Texas. So, so you know, Texas has an awful lot of advantages that should allow them to be in that situation. But you know, recent recent results do not do not suggest that. 
and it is interesting that they just took an, uh, they uh, um, let's see here they um, made a change at offensive coordinator and uh, our, our, our right. old offensive coordinator who had somehow fallen fo- fallen up um, um, Tim Beck Tim Beck yeah he uh, he was the offensive coordinator there and he got let go <laughs> um, um, but um, but he landed um, on his feet again. But he landed on his feet again. I know, got another job. But, but uh, which is what? What did I? Where did I say he ended up? North Carolina State, right? Yeah, I think that's what it was. Yep. But um, crazy, amazing, just amazing. Right. But uh, but th- so. that's true. That we'll have to see how that uh, change in coaching staff affects their offense next year. Correct. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. But but they got Ohio State's offensive coordinator, so we'll see. We'll see. Um, well, and Tim Beck was at Ohio State before he came to Texas, so there you go. Uh, That's true. The uh, speaking of the Pac-12, this was an interesting one that I didn't watch, um, but uh, Boise State was ranked 19th uh, in the pre-bowl game uh, polls by the College Football Playoff team, uh, whereas Washington was not ranked, and yet uh, Washington destroyed them 38 to seven in the Las Vegas Bowl. Yes, and and of course that was the the game. I mean, uh, um, the coach at Washington had had already announced that he was leaving, um, uh, you know, to step away from the game. Um, and um, so, uh, you know, I don't even know the circumstances. I don't know if he was still coaching or if he had already left, because I know his his reason for departure was uh, family related. Uh, he has um, some um, a special needs son that. Um, you know, needs some special attention, I think. And so that was dry, a driving factor in that decision. But um, uh, Chris Peterson was a great coach, highly regarded, and had stepped stepped away from Washington. I don't know if that was kind of viewed as his final game or not. Do you happen to know whether he coached that game or had he already stepped away? Um, I'm not sure, but that would make sense that if that was like his yeah. farewell game that the players came out for it. Well, and remember that he's from Boise. He was the guy that helped build Boise State. And so, um, you know, Chris, uh, having that connection, you know, his players from Washington had a little extra motivation to make sure that they, you know, sent the right message, and they did. Right. All right. Very good. And then uh, uh, another upset, uh, at least it's not in terms of ranking, but just in terms of perception, I think it is, was uh, Iowa versus USC in the Holiday Bowl. Uh, Iowa was ranked 16th. USC was 22. And Iowa uh, proved that they earned that ranking by beating them 49 to 24. Yes. And again, uh, you would expect the roster from USC to have far more talent than the roster from Iowa. And that, that those rosters may have been much closer than historically they would be, you know, based on USC's history. But, um, you know, the, the, the fact is, is Iowa just played Iowa football, very consistent football. They looked sound in what they were doing and beat them, uh, just beat them up. Right. Yeah, well, and, and the Iowa team that we very nearly beat, you know, at Nebraska. Right. Well, that's the thing is that you start looking at some of these games that we lost, like, um, you know, the three point loss to Wisconsin. And I mean, to uh, uh, Iowa, the, the, the close uh, uh, fought game against uh, Wisconsin. Um, and then, of course, Minnesota doing what they did 
um, that's pretty impressive um, stuff that those some of those teams did in the postseason. So, um, you know, I feel like maybe Nebraska wasn't as bad as I was beating them up to be, you know, because uh, I, I was very angry with my team, continue to be angry <laughs> with my team. Yes. yes. Uh, I just looked it up uh, that what Peterson did coach in that bowl game. So that was his last game. Okay. Okay. So that, you know what? I think that, and he was playing his old team. Right. I mean, so that had the double whammy there. Right. Yep. Makes total sense. Uh, all right. So uh, those were the, the bowl games of, 2019 uh and so we have one final game to look forward to that lsu clemson game uh which is yes which is that i i thought from the the beginning that those two were the best two teams and i wanted them to play so i am excited about this uh my brain says that lsu played so good and they're less injured um that i feel like they're definitely the favorites uh in my mind but my heart wants clemson to win again just because i like them as a team and they have they've shown their ability in many games to be able to uh pull comebacks against teams that supposedly are more talented than them you know they have that championship mindset they've been there before so i think that uh that x factor may be what gets them through yet again got it okay well you know uh, i i was thinking ohio state was one of the two most talented teams i I would have projected uh, from, say, midseason that it was Ohio State and then LSU that were going to end up facing each other, not Clemson. Uh, although Clemson has improved, obviously, over the course of the season and, and did what they had to do against Ohio State. And, and the thing that I just have to give them so much credit for is their coaching. Their coaching did such a good job of preparing and having a game plan that was effective against o- Ohio State. And if they can do that again, then, then, then Clemson might very well be able to beat what I believe is, is a superior talented team uh, uh, in LSU. Now, uh, I say that from the standpoint of a, across the board, like all the defensive positions and, and everything else, I just feel like um, you know, LSU has great defensive talent, they have some great offensive talent, and they have a great uh, quarterback. And and uh, but Clemson also has a great quarterback, and they also have some incredible weapons and wide receivers and such. So I just think it's going to be a hell of a battle. But uh, but uh, the one thing that uh, I believe will factor in here is LSU has been in a lot of big games. I mean, they had to play Alabama and they had to play Auburn and they had to play a lot of SEC teams and 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 rise to that level of performance on a lot of big stages over the course of the year. And, um, um, you know, Clemson really didn't have that have to face that many tough teams in a row. So I wish I knew what the, you know, status of uh, banged up players was and stuff, you know, and just how I mean, they, they may say, oh, they're going to play. But how many of them are truly you know, healthy and how many of them are are going to be playing in uh, not uh, hurt, you know, so I'm going to say I'm going to lean LSU. I think LSU is the better team, and so I will pick LSU. All right. Well, uh, for the sake of of differing it up and also because I'm going to put my faith in them like I did against Ohio State, uh, I'm going to say that uh, (laughs) I can hear Mom doing her dishes there. Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, I'm going to say that uh, 
Clemson takes it. I'm going to predict it'll be 35-31. Uh, I think LSU's offense is incredible um, and that they will score some points so that it's going to be on uh, Trevor Lawrence and Clemson's offense to fire it up and score back in return. Wow, that's awesome. Um, now, that see, that seems like a higher score than I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess. I think there's going to be, you know, like the first quarter is going to be a feeling out time for both teams. I think it's going to end up being low scoring uh, early, particularly. And then it'll get hotter at the end, but it still won't get that hot. So I'm going to go 28-24 LSU. All right. Good. No, I'm sorry. Let's go 28-21 21. LSU. I, I want it to be a full seven points. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, well, if either either one of those scores sounds like it would be a good competitive game, so I'm looking forward to uh, to watching it. Absolutely, it should be it should be a good game. And, and again, you know, uh, the feature the the kind of feature of a national championship type of environment that uh, that the people who created this college football playoff were looking for. But but uh, but I'm hopeful that they grow it into. Um, um, more teams because if if they're going to create so much focus on the teams that are in the playoff that I want more teams in the playoff so we have more things that matter in the postseason right all right very good well it'll be uh we'll be back after the uh national championship game to discuss it of course and wrap up this this season of college football of course as usual you know we'll uh come back and talk about some recruiting news and um, any kind of Nebraska-related news that happens over the, the summer uh, as we get into that. Uh, but uh, it's been a fun season of college football, even though you know it wasn't as fun for our Nebraska team as we were hoping for, but still lots of good games to watch, and there's hope for the future and our youthful talent and all that. Uh, so I'm looking forward to all that. Yes, I'm looking forward to the future. I can't describe this as a fun season. My, my pain factor is too great uh, for me to call this a, a fun season right. from the standpoint of being a, a Husker fan. But, uh, but certainly it's been fun to watch Joe Burrows emerge as the player that he has. It's been neat to see some of the things happen that, that have happened in terms of like, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, Kansas State and Kansas with their new coaches doing very doing uh, creating some interest, I guess, would be a way to put it. Um, and then, uh, you know, what Mac Brown has done at North Carolina. I mean, there's been some interesting storylines to follow. And going into next season, you know, the, what's going on at USC? Uh, you know, what's going to happen at Notre Dame? Notre Dame has been good but not great for some time. Michigan's been good but not great for some time. You know, and so the pressure cookers are building there, to be, uh, you know, with fan bases that expect more than just being good that they expect pursuit of championships and they're not happening. Uh, so the question is, you know, what's going to happen with some of those programs? So lots of storylines going into next season. Very true. Very true. All right. So if you all out there enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can find us online. If you search for college football throwdown, we're on Apple podcasts and iTunes. Uh, you can leave us a review there a rating. Let us know what you think of the podcast. You could also find us on podomatic.com and leave a comment there. Uh, we'll read it out on the air. Uh, you can also reach us at huskerpete13 at gmail.com if you want to reach out with direct feedback. So thank you all out there for listening, and thank you, Dad, for hosting with me. And until next time, go Big Red. Go Big Red. Go Big Red.